Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. This episode is called Cosine, I think. As I mentioned in the previous episodes, uh, it took a long time for me to get to college in a way where I felt like I was, you know, going away to college. Um, when my when I did go away to college, my adoptive parents put my cat Bacchus to sleep, not telling me for weeks. Um, there was no warning, I understood, uh, no indication that he was having health issues beyond his sort of absurdly large frame. I was visiting their house and asked where Bacchus was when they first told me. I don't know that I've ever forgiven them for getting to for forgetting to let me know they had had him killed. Um, I also learned that during an argument with my adoptive sister, my adoptive father had retreated to the house, retrieved his gun and the cat Bacchus, returned to the garage where he and she had been arguing, and held his gun to the head of Bacchus, my cat, and he told her that it wouldn't matter if he killed Bacchus, as cats have no souls, or words to that effect. That they would forget to let me know my cat had died at their hands was hardly the most offensive thing they've done in their in my life, but in many ways it was the beginning of a kind of loathing that has continued to flower over the years, sort of ultimately leading to our estrangement. I, I saw that embracing, by embracing the sort of growing aggressive tendencies that I encountered within evangelicals, that the logical endpoint of that mindset was the justification of political violence, army of God mentality. Um, I felt then, and I feel even more strongly now, that the world does not need more examples of white male aggression. Um, uh, if I had remained in Idaho and had never questioned my life path, I would have been radicalized into a violent support, into becoming a violent supporter of evangelical ideology, perhaps filled with self-loathing. My adoptive parents. Um, wanted me to attend a private religious college in Kansas and become a teacher or a preacher or leave the country and serve in the military overseas. Moving to Kansas, you know, it kind of reset my expectations about what I could do after high school. But while other students were visiting colleges, I was locked up and being dosed with what was a new class of medications fresh on the psychiatric market. Still on those drugs after senior year, and I graduated, I did not have the option to go to college after high school, and my adoptive parents refused to sign the paperwork for student loans and said that they had spent all of the money they'd set aside for me to use for college. They said I could live at home as long as I worked 40 hours a week and paid them rent, which is what I did after high school. So they really pushed me towards the military. They suggested that I go into the military and then go to college that way rather than co-sign a student loan. Um, I just didn't tell them that the Marines had turned me down because I'd been on Prozac at that time in experimental medication. But, you know, coming out of the mental hospital, having been on heavy daily doses for months of these new psychiatric medications, I discovered that the military in general and the Marines in particular had very little interest in getting me on board. 
At the time, I increasingly found the idea of killing anyone, particularly at the direction of the government, to a morally disrupting, disturbing idea. I didn't want to do that kind of moral injury to myself. I began to paint all institutions as sort of inherently hostile to the individual by this point in my ethical understanding. So institutions seem to have too much power over the bodies of individuals, I'd come to believe. And by then I felt that these institutions were more malevolent, more intentional than I personally understand them to be as I say this now, or as I wrote the script, or as I talk through this. Uh, there have been experiments on adoptees in our nation's history. Uh, I've referenced a few times the nonfiction documentary film Three Identical Strangers, 2018. It documents one such experiment and hinted at many other sets of adoptees who were being observed throughout their life, much like the narrative arc of The Truman Show, 1998. Just like the film Scanners is a meditation on the drug thalidomide scandals, the Truman Show is a meditation on the scandals of the three identical strangers, of, of this sort of observation, the panopticon of the adoptees' experience. I do not think that I am an experiment, like the adoptee triplets, Robert Shaffron, Eddie Galland, and David Kelman, who were literally experimented on in the 70s and 80s, or that there has been a preponderance of surveillance of me more than any other person in today's society, but a lifelong anxiety about my place in the world is, was made worse, not better, by the circumstances of my closed adoption. Closed private adoption is another way of saying gray market adoption, and is not the normal adoption practice today in the United States. I believe now most adoption services are through adoption agencies, either with oversight from the state itself or under the oversight of the Department of State for International Adoptions, in my situation, which was the result of coordination by two Baptist pastors at two different churches, a family doctor, possibly my biological grandfather, and a lawyer to submit the documents, a secretary to smuggle me out of the hospital, all of the people who made decisions and prepared the process for my birth mother to give me away were men, uh, except for that secretary, playing her part as the birth mother. And there was that woman acting as the replacement to maintain a false front for some reason. Um, my, my, just like I'm trying to remember moments of assault, possibly sexual or otherwise, in my early infancy and childhood, I'm trying to remember an identity trauma that took place outside of my body at times that I was not present. <laughs> but... As I understand it, my biological mother was coerced by her pastor, her doctor, and probably her father to cut all ties with me. Her failure to do so completely, to leave the mystic bonds, the secret knots, the psychic links in place, was the thread I somehow eventually isolated, sort of almost psychedelically zeroing in on that strand and plucking at it in my mid-twenties. And that vibration that then led me to her name and address as I unpuzzled the world around her, uh, there is a resonance there, something I learned somehow by watching movies about psychics, uh, the dead zone. Closed adoption, private or otherwise, is a massive social experiment that has echoes of colonialism and genocide. And around the world, 
activists are trying to overturn and end the practice in different countries for different reasons, but there is no global repository of activist methods and rhetoric to push back against this traditional practice. Instead, Ireland, Canada, and Australia adoptees and birth mothers are demanding that the government acknowledge its, complicitly, its complicity in wildly abusive practices that led to thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of babies being adopted, their identities wiped away. Catholic and Christian adoption agencies see closed adoption as a religious practice, a kind of washing away of the parents' sin through the blood of Christ, only using secrecy and anonymization as the sacrament of blood, rather than wine or grape juice, as in communion. The normalization of closed adoption and the legal framework, think about that, the legal framework that criminalizes adoptee access to their own birth records is not unique to the United States, but the lack of an active anti-adoption activist group set on the overturning of these laws is palpable compared to other countries. Uh, I think this is in no small part, and I've said this previously, to the balkanization of the United States' laws regarding adoption. Every state is a new battleground, meaning that all grassroots organizations tend to organize for the most populous states. Uh, there's a great organization I um, sort of, I guess, was briefly a member of because I paid dues. And I let those lapse because I was broke and homeless. I still really like the work, uh, support the people doing it. Bastard Nation. It's ostensibly dedicated to nationwide activism. But this state-by-state -state situation means that causing coherent change is nearly impossible without a national awakening to the pain caused by closed adoptions. The implications of human rights violations, the parallels with genocidal institutional strategies, these aren't easy things to look at. People disassociate, just like I disassociate as I'm trying to get through relaying all of this verbally. Um, social groups disassociate the genocidal institutional implications in their own families um, because it's not easy to confront. But, Yeah, Discovering Bastard Nation gave me hope. It gave me hope in a couple of different ways. Give me hope that there were more people dissatisfied with the answers they were given. And while I doubt there will ever be a density of adoptees large enough to affect change by themselves in the state of Idaho, I do think there is a cultural awareness being driven in part by the activism coordinated, in part by the existence of Bastard Nation. So they give me hope that media itself is changing. At the very least, I'd never seen Bastard reclaimed until I ran into Bastard Nation online, and it felt empowering to see online. That gave me a little bit of self-assurance I needed to continue carrying on in my own search. At the time, I had, I think I encountered them in 99, or maybe 2000. I had been newly on my own, living in a city apart from my own adoptive parents and far from my biological parents. I had the distance to formulate my own understanding of myself as a citizen and as a bastard, a label, a label then I heartily embraced. I read everything I could easily and cheaply, as I was always one paycheck away from serious poverty for much of this period of my life. When I was young, when I was very young, it seemed like I lived within books, within libraries, within spaces where books were venerated. 
The nooks in friends' homes, awash in comics, are buried in magazines in the corners of couches, while adults discuss television or news or weather. I would read voraciously rather than eat. I would read while I rode my bicycle rather than watch the road. I would read books to hide other books I wasn't supposed to read, like Clive Barker's Magica. I read a children's library by the time I was ten, which unlocked the adult library for me somehow. There in Twin Falls, Idaho. But as I aged, reading for fun faded. I mean, this isn't entirely true. I found other forms of leisure more available, and I began tweeting in 2008 as a sideline of the blogging and podcasting I was doing at the time. My reading time when I used to read books became replaced with tweeting time, which was a kind of incessant search, a search for something to distract me momentarily from the search that always consumed my passive thoughts, a search for who I was, or at least how I fit into the world. Reading was searching, and I read fast. I read less and less for pleasure, unless it was for a purpose or a discovery. A few authors could get me to stop my scrolling on Twitter for a while, but I always went back to Twitter. Live breaking chat from around the world is an incredibly dynamic experience, and the earliest years of Twitter provided a lot of different ways to play with the service, so it was a consuming hobby. My speed of reading never faded, but the desire to read as escapism left, and my desire to search, understand, and uncover took over. Um, hmm. I wonder if I find it harder in some ways to listen to the insights and daydreams of others as fiction because the noise inside my own head had increased. It was so unsettled at this time. Ultimately, I found that only a few authors had the density to appeal to me and the pain and understanding of pain that I needed to read at the time in my life. Um, I have found that since since then, as I integrate, uh, my, I've found ways to finally get my own experiences out of me. I can return to my childhood love of reading fiction for its own sake, and a lot of that comes through reading books aloud with my wife to my son. Um, so I've also grown weary of social media, having worked for so many years in it as a field. I first joined a social media uh, site called Irreality in 2005. I first ran across it in 2000, joining it in 2005. I don't think there was anything else like it online. It was a small community that used the service uh, in an insular but inclusive way. And the features, well, seriously intensive for the server, it sort of implied a utopian, self-correcting, self-improving social space that could be maintained online, gave users the feedback, the feedback they desired while allowing for customizations that expressed each user's individuality at the granular level, um, and it was a private social network available by invitation, and it replicated a great deal of the functionality that is sort of now present in Facebook, I think some of its ideas came to Facebook. It was harvested. But while that online platform failed, 2005 has always felt like a high watermark in my experience of online community building until I found the adoptee groups on Facebook and Twitter, you know, a decade later. I'd probably be happy to leave social spaces entirely, wander off into the analog world, and wash my hands of the digital spaces. I came to the internet from offline computing in the very last months of the 1980s. 
And I have a very clear memory of realizing sometime in 1994 that if I sat in front of an online computer for long enough, I would figure out who my parents are, that somehow it would happen. <laughs> this was a psychic sense, but it was accurate. There are many, many aspects of being a person I feel I sacrificed along the way to read all the books available through the library system. Uh, I remember reading the book Second Choice, Growing Up Adopted by Robert Anderson, and it was the first instance where I began to wonder if my private adoption might actually be a kind of black market adoption, such as he had experienced. Um, being a bastard, understanding that I wasn't imagining it when I felt like my family didn't always like or understand me, that I didn't look like them, and that was to be expected, not something I to which I could alter or adjust. Um, and there's a song by Mortise entitled Marshland, which encapsulates why I must write this down. The adoption industry is a machine, and it does not hear the voice of the product that moves through its supply chain. It cannot. The rules of capitalization prevent the industry for its own reification from acknowledging the cries of the product. Nothing that I say or do matters to the machine. Nothing that I think or feel matters to the machine. And if I'm dead when tomorrow's gone, the great machine will just move on. Those are the lyrics of Marshland. My life, unexamined, unexplored, is a complicity with that machine. If I did die early through self-abuse, neglect, or suicide, then I am another modicum of data swept up into studies that grease the social levers of the adoption industry. I must stand alive to be a stick in the wheel of the machine. I must draw attention to the horrors trapped in the shadows of the machine. And when that machine transgresses into illegality, I and others must be the vanguard, pointing to the excesses and creating social awareness around the complexities of the industry. I was inspired by that bastard nation, but I also had a life filled with the struggle to remain employed, befriended, and artistically engaged. When I explained what I wanted to do, what the laws in Idaho seemed to be, and the conflict I felt about how adoptees' desire to search was treated legally, my adoptive parents were open to helping in any way they could to their credit. In my adult life, they tried to support my erratic searches and requests to the best of their ability. And as I learned over the years, my fight is not with beings of flesh and blood, but with ideals, with thoughts and spirits of the laws. These struggles take place within stories, sharing new stories, hearing voices in the public spheres, and debating the merits of quaint traditions and unexamined myths taken as gospel for far too long. Change comes with embracing fear, leaning into it to see the promise that knowledge can bring. My adoptive sister said when I pressed her about starting her own DNA search that she didn't want to open Pandora's box. I want to peek in. I reminded her that Pandora's box, at the end of it all, still contained hope, arguably the most important gift the gods could have let loose on the earth. I found my tribe by finding friendships and forging relationships outside of the confines of the institutions and situations that were constantly framing my identity in specific ways. Life is lived in the margins, in the liminal, 
in the fields, away from the walls of church and school, state surveillances and county courthouses. It began online, and now it's entirely entangled within the confines of Twitter and, sadly, Facebook and Instagram. There's no real email community anymore, no listservs that I participate in or that I see is growing. Uh, the email itself is an extension of Google or some other massive advertiser-based entity, as that is the model of our times. I, I felt this come up around me, and with the televisual bleed of reality programming, the very identity of adoptees itself fast becoming a new commodity in human interest stories. Um, again, I hope that adoptees are themselves telling their stories, centralizing their voices, rather than continuing the kind of exploitation so profoundly articulated in The Truman Show, the 1998 film. I remember sending in my registration form to the adoption registry after the first time I'd requested my birth certificate from the state of Idaho. It was a feeling of nervous anticipation. That was in 1994. I wouldn't receive a letter back until 2004, and that was not through the registry, but through years of dogged persistence in uncovering everything I could, then telling everyone I could find online in adoptee forms what I'd learned. A kind of self-doxing. Uh, as far as recommending a place for someone to do something similar, I no longer would know where to begin, nor who to trust, what websites were false fronts on some fiendish startup or global superpowers compromised social network. At the time, from 1998 to 2003, I spread, I spread all of the information I could acquire onto two or three of the online websites that database-based adoptee search requests. I also created and maintained many different email accounts, which I would use to subscribe to different email listservs, all of which I differentiated my handles depending on the group's in which I was writing. And this performing of identity, of like a fractured like identity, was sort of conscious, but it was also limiting in that I would forget to check email accounts after a while. So such was the case in 2003 when a contact email I'd posted online, adoptee seeking self at yahoo.com, was found by my biological half-sister, who had learned I was alive from her mother, my mother, years before. I believe I learned. She tried to contact me, either through email or Yahoo Messenger, but I'd stopped signing into that account, and I'd missed her. Like, literally missed her. I saw her sign in and send me a message as my computer was powering down. I saw it appear on the screen. We, we eventually did communicate, and it took some time for me to come to terms with the visceral reality of being anchored in humanity, that I had relatives, that I was related to someone. I call this the Unrelated Thoughts podcast. I, I think about adoptee as being always unrelated, but the fact is, adoptees are related to someone, somewhere. I didn't quite believe I found who I was looking for until I did a DNA test sometime later and saw the matches with my biological uncle on her side, you know. Um, the data from that first DNA test eventually led to discovering my biological father as well with some research and cross-examination. But here, let me dramatize the moment. I had received an email from an address I'd never seen before. Someone 
who had read my post on a website and had found the connections somehow and had sent me the information she'd been able to find once she'd found my birth mother's name that included all known addresses and name variations. This is something that arrived to me cold in, in my uh, inbox. So I sent a handwritten letter to an address in that email which was believed to be the last known address that she, my biological mother was at, explaining who I thought she might be, who I was, a little bit about myself, and my mailing address if she'd like to respond. Again, at the time, I lived at what was known colloquially as the Prospect House, a preternaturally large house perched amongst the trees a block from the cemetery in Lawrence, Kansas, near the William S. Burroughs Creek, uh, the very tail end of the Underground Railroad years and years before. The top floor of the structure I lived in at the time was the attic, a space that was large enough to encompass a full band and onlookers with tables for card games and ashtrays, skylights to let the sound of the guitars and bass drum roll across the ancient railroad tracks in the area. I was in that attic alone opening the mail amidst the press board and repurposed Christmas lights when I opened her response, which included a poem. Her letter let me know that I was right. I'd found her. The poem let me know that it was real, really her. I was a poet, and I kept my work to myself. I felt something undeniably similar in her sparse poem to my own work. There's a disquietness, a gaping maw, a pit within oneself when the movement shifts from seeking to found. Uh, the self is in motion, a momentum the mind does not feel. When that motion is complete, shifted, turned on its axis, the mind is challenged. I adapted, but I also collapsed. I needed to remind myself who I was, outside of the search, that I could find who I was looking for left me shaken, that, I, that there was an end to search. I'd believed it was impossible that I was taking on not only the state, but God himself, that Christian one, who was invoked to spearhead an evangelism of adoption, a religious imperative that blinds its adherence to the cultural history of colonialist oppression and genocide and leads to white families demanding that they be allowed to adopt native children against the wishes of the various tribes throughout the country. At that time, I still saw God as an articulated primarily through a Christian vision, as much as I longed to break free from that constraint. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not sure what I said in response. I believe I mailed her response, possibly whatever poetry I compiled into a short poetry tract. I'd begun photocopying and stapling my poetry into tracts that I had then left in various places around Lawrence, Kansas, and I, I certainly had plenty of copies on hand, so it would have been like me to have sent poetry. The partial reunion of sorts was traumatic enough that I withdrew, uh, seeking to find a new sense of purpose. I spent some time not thinking, almost aggressively not thinking, about my adoption, about the implications of what I learned about the weeks leading to my birth. All secondhand knowledge, some of it led me down paths of research that seemed important, only to find that those things couldn't possibly be true. Um, I somehow got scans of a yearbook from Twin Falls High School for that era and found no one who looked like me in the male students. Then I gave up for a long time. Um, a relationship fell apart around me, and I found I no longer cared enough to try to make amends. 
another collapse soon after, and I drifted away from Lawrence, uh, eventually landing in Troy, New York, where my strange luck played out in a new, much more centered life. Being an adoptee means to be defined by the state as a permanent victim, with, a, with the potential to be a destroyer of social status. Culturally, it means that all lies in service of identity erasure are absolved. When those lies begin to collapse into truth, the narrative emerges, that adopted identity is thrown into stark relief as a shell being occupied by a living person, a non-entity who has been placed within a role. So that role, no matter how comforting or painful it may be to play, is still a second self, a self-performed. The formal lies of the state or the internal family secrets, both as determined prior to my birth within my mother's family, and the secrets that are implicit in the passing of myself as a relative of the unroofed family, became the fault lines that scarred my psyche as I developed. I was shaped by these constraints, bound to grow as a graft against a grain of family tree to which I could find no purchase. Hmm. Earlier in previous podcast episodes, earlier in my script, in this book I am writing, I described a point late in my senior year at high school when a friend of a friend who was adopted sent in a request for her original birth certificate when she turned 18. She received it and found her birth mother in the phone book and was reunited in the summer after I had graduated. Later in life, I learned that Kansas was one of only several states where that series of events was even a possibility at that time, and I also learned that in Idaho this would have been a felony where I to have received my original birth certificate. What I witnessed firsthand in Kansas was a crime in the eyes of Idaho, and I was denied this fundamental life moment. I want to explain how I came to consciousness as an adoptee through all of this, and what that process means. I became aware that I was adopted with my earliest memories, but understanding there was more to the world than the world with which I had been presented and that my adoption was central to my experience of that constructed world, that came later, after bastard consciousness, after consciousness of myself as a, uh, a hailed entity within a state apparatus. As an adolescent, I began to feel as if I was being watched, observed. I felt like there was something going on around me that everyone else understood, but that I was not in on. This anxiety began when I was 12 years old, at a sixth grade function at the Christian school I attended. I've mentioned this book fair several times previously in previous episodes, previously in the script even. It was a book fair being held to encourage parishioners of the church to sponsor books for inclusion in the school's library. Donations would lead to notes in the front of the books, names. Hmm. And for some reason, I was there standing at a table talking to people about my favorite books. At the time, I was obsessed, underscore obsessed, with the Encyclopedia Brown series of novels, of which I'd easily read the first ten or more. A woman approached me, who looked familiar, and she asked me what books I liked, to which I promptly gushed about Encyclopedia Brown. Her next question perplexed me. She said, do you know who I am? I said, no. She then turned and walked away without saying anything else. I turned to my friend's mom, the school librarian, 
alongside whom I'd been standing and asked her who that woman had been. That was Mrs. Harper, I recall her saying, or perhaps even, that was Colleen Harper. I knew I had seen her before, but I never saw her again. I later learned that she shared this moment with others in her family, that she had seen me and knew who I was. This sense that there was a layer of relationships around me that I didn't fully understand, but that was in observation of me, was anchored in a reality that I spent an inordinate amount of time theorizing. I was worried I was being watched. Well, I was being watched, but I was worried when I was younger I was being watched by aliens from the Menagerie episode of Star Trek. The big external brain heads, the robes, the mind control telepathy, the way they floated down hallways, all of this would play out over and over again in my imagination. These watchers, uh, the, this particular fear seems to have been from the time I was five or six years old. I also remember being convinced there was a camera in my light fixture and that Oscar the Grouch was watching me sleep. Somehow this fear led to me peeing into my dirty clothes hamper in the middle of the night, rather than walk to the bathroom across the hall from where I slept. These fears, as strange as they seem in the light of adult thought, were powerful motivators in what became a youthful interest in psychic defense, trance states, and hypnosis. All started by, <laughs> you know, meeting other kids that were into it when I was a kid. I think it was part of the culture, it was part of the discussion. It was also developed and cultivated an interest in uncanny, in science fiction, horror, and fantasy film, and Star Trek. As the films began to mark out the 80s, leading to the Star Trek The Next Generation television series and Deep Space Nine broadcasts, and in conspiracy theories as a kind of folklore, um, my generalized interests are a diffusion of these psychic marks. Remnants of these moments seared into my memories. I disassociate, and rather than express the insights that could help carve out the secret pains, I shift to the moment of emotionally charged mediated sequence, recalling the death of Spock, if you will, in the Star Trek film, rather than the rage I felt when I was taunted for wearing glasses at the Christian school I attended. Um, feeling the smell of a crushed nose, the unique pain odor of sinus swelling, the agony of bruised ribs, ripped open from the edge of a locker after a bully forced me onto it. I gave up playing the coronet after that assault, I remember, at Twin Falls Christian Academy. Something I don't remember anyone getting in trouble for, something I could never resolve myself. I thought about retribution, but I was afraid to fight back. Instead, I thought perhaps I could win friendship, or at least respect, or maybe fear. If I'd remained at the school beyond my ninth grade year, I'd likely escalated the conflict with that older student in violent ways. Um, I was consumed with the need to stop the abuse that had begun in kindergarten and continued every year except for the two I'd been homeschooled. Moving to Kansas in the summer between ninth and tenth grade disrupted that personal trajectory. In retrospect, I often wondered if the bullying had come because it was known that I was an adoptee, that not only that, but that my parentage was a topic of the larger church's conversation. I thought of myself as a bastard, a mamzer. If I had internalized this as young as 11 or 12, I must have assumed that the boys older than I, who relentlessly picked on me throughout elementary and high school and junior high, must have also known I was an adoptee, a bastard born of someone in their church, and sought to punish me accordingly on behalf of their parents' moral code. Sort of vigilante volunteerism.
Certainly the pastor and the principal of the school knew I was adopted and from where I'd come, and I theorized that the librarian whom I'd been standing alongside when Miss Harper approached me also knew that I was related to her by blood. To be clear, at the time I was being bullied my observer theories were about equally split between malevolent and benevolent watchers. As a child, I thought for a long time that I was a werewolf and that I'd realize it. The change would come upon reaching puberty. I thought then my mother would come from the landslide, the landslide from beyond the canals and fields as a wolf herself, and she would lead me transformed into the South Hills. I believed my mother and father would appear when I was needed to join their struggle, whatever fight that may have been. These beliefs were ephemeral, um, yet resilient. They would fade in the daylight, but return night after night. I found them comforting, but ultimately I knew I was trying to placate a gnawing curiosity that only grew as I aged. <sighs> my first realization when I was 17 and I turned 17 in a Christian mental hospital in Plano, Texas. My first realization when I was 17 was when I kept my own private counsel about how little the mental health professionals seemed to care that I was adopted, and preferring to focus all their efforts into medicating my symptoms, either speeding me up or slowing my thoughts in various ways with medications. Through trial and error over several years, I learned that the path to mental health was not to be found through my adoptive parents chasing diagnoses, with psychiatrists and Christian therapists they picked out for me. Uh, I instinctively began finding alternative drug therapies and somehow survived without much damage with the guidance of many individuals. My actual salvation was at the hands of a Gulf War veteran with PTSD and Gulf War syndrome who understood how to survive despite the drug regimen imposed upon him by the Veterans Administration. He told me directly to never tell a psychiatrist I had PTSD that the drugs they were giving him were poison, and he refused to take them after the side effects nearly killed him. For many years, I avoided any mental health treatment on his advice. He taught me what the symptoms were, how to manage them, how to anticipate triggers, how to think through the paranoid moments without being swayed by them into a flight, fight, or freeze response. And he gave tips on how to move into what he called a flow state, uh, I found out later that this is a state theorized by game studies researcher. I think his name is, as I massacre it, Jigzent Mihaly. Uh, Jigzent Mihaly. That's all. But flow states are a kind of psychic self-defense mechanism to guide my reaction to stress triggers. I was not always able to remember to do the visualizations he recommended, but it always helps when I can do it and becoming aware of the symptoms I was exhibiting and in which I had nearly always exhibited was concurrent with my growing obsession with finding my biological parents or at least their names. Becoming conscious of myself was becoming conscious of my own trauma. Years later, I learned that PTSD treatment has probably not progressed much further, but therapy and self-hypnosis, along with some of my own creative processes, have managed to make what I now know as CPTSD, less intrusive into my behaviors. Um, before meeting the veteran, I had read the book The Primal Wound by Nancy Verrier, 
Uh, first printing with a printer's error, my copy was. My copy ended at page 220, and the last two pages of text, along with the notes, bibliography, glossary, and biography of the author, were also missing. Hmm. Even still, I read the book and marveled at how precisely it described not just myself and my experience as an adoptee, but also my younger adoptive sister's experience, uh, particularly our relationships as siblings and with our adoptive parents. I had also puzzled over the last missing section. So chapter 16, page 221, the mystic aspect, it's called. This, being missing from my copy, pestered me. Uh, I found and sent... I found her email address and sent her an email and asked, I believe, if she could email me at the end of the book. I explained in the email that I had had numerous odd synchronicities throughout my life, that I felt like a strange attractor of sorts, and that I was resultingly very curious about how she ended her book. Uh, her very gracious response was to ask for my address instead, and she sent me a new copy with best wishes inscribed in the front of the book. Happily, as well, for by that time, my cat Schrodinger had long since marked my original copy with urine. I'd washed it off and drained it, you know, as best I could, dried it out in the sunlight, if you will, because it was that important of a text for me, and for years it was always out amidst the greater clutter of my studio space, a sort of ever-present reference point, even urine-stained by the cat. Here's the passage that woke me up and kept me aware. I see my navel as a scar of separation. It is, uh, as I've said, the first whirling scar I describe in my poetry as such. Adoptee is a birth cry I wrote to centralize my focus on this unrelated text as, a, as such as a deconstruction of the wound that Nancy Barrier describes in this passage. She writes, the idea of a wound caused by an infant's being separated from its biological mother is not an easy idea to accept because it implies that there is no way around this wound, no pat answers or magical solutions. It implies that all adopted children suffer from this wound and that, although there are certain criteria for evaluating the symptoms of the wound, different adoptees will respond to these manifestations differently. While it is certainly true that the wound cannot be entirely healed, it is hoped that there are ways in which it can at least be mitigated. She concludes the chapter with an articulation of the overarching complications within our culture. If I hope for any impact at all from this process of writing out my experience, reading it aloud, contemporizing it, sort of riffing upon it, is to humanize and provide a narrative frame to make explicit the lesson packed into what is her closing paragraph on page 109. Loss is paramount in the understanding of what is going on with each member of the adoption triad. The adoptee is feeling the loss of the birth mother, the birth mother is feeling the loss of her child, and the adoptive parents are feeling the loss of their fertility and genetic continuity. None is able to grieve, sometimes because the feelings are so repressed or denied as to make them inaccessible, other times because society ignores their grief and thinks that the adoptee and adoptive parents should feel lucky and that the birth mother made her choice and should get on with her life. As I've said before, ours is not a society which understands loss very well. 
adoption is seen as a happy event which calls for a celebration and this may be true at least for the adoptive parents but it is also true that there is loss involved for everyone loss which needs to be mourned loss which is not mourned can be debilitating leaving one feeling at the mercy of unexplainable and unpredictable feelings understanding acceptance empathy and communication are the keys to the beginning of healing that's how she, uh, sort of an end to that passage. Her book is empowering for many adoptees. And over the years, I've relied on it as a guidance in place of the mental health practitioners, which were complicit in what I saw at the time as religious brainwashing, complete with drug and repetitive Christian music on endless loops, the Petra Praise album, always being played, that I endured in a youth behavioral ward in a mental health, hospital facility in Plano, Texas, my adoptive parents put me in. I spent my 17th birthday in that hospital, as I've said, um, the album Praise by Petra playing in the background. I spent nearly two months, over seven weeks, from the beginning of March of 1991 to the end of April. I returned home to a country changed while I'd been gone. I'd changed as well. I was no longer trustful of any adult particularly my adoptive parents and the people they wanted me to divulge my innermost thoughts. Hmm. As a counterpoint to her book, I would emphasize that at no time throughout my stay at that mental hospital did any nurse or, co or doctor ask the question, how does it feel to be adopted? That book, The Physical Copy, was the beginning of my research beyond just what had happened to me mentally and physically, but what it meant to research. I read Betty Jean Lifton's work, dug into online resources and discussions, and absorbed everything I could dig up. I called the retired pastor of my adoptive parents' church and talked to him for an hour, writing down everything he could remember. He described the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in 1974 as more of a Hellfire guy, a bit of a holy roller, as he described it. That was the church my biological mother was from, he was certain. He remembered because it was the only time an adoption like this had happened while he was pastor, and only due to, his, due to my own initiation of questioning that he was able to fill in any of the blanks in his memory. In my family, as I grew up, the facts of my adoption were never addressed. I had a long conversation in my early 20s with my adoptive parents where I grilled them for anything they could remember, which then led to my calling of the retired pastor. As a teen, unable to correlate all the internal conflicts with a specific trauma, I was unable to articulate the extremely obvious source of my anxieties about other people, other families. And think back on that. And during that time in the hospital, I learned to mask my immediate depressive symptoms rather than discuss them, as it was the only visible way to win my freedom from the incarceration, or so I believed. When I was finally released, though, it was only because my adoptive parents had spent my entire college fund they'd saved for me, and the hospital discharged me. So learning this sent me into a deep and abiding depression. My false self, which I had learned to deliberately construct, thanks to daily group therapy sessions, became a shell, a vehicle I used to navigate the false relationships my adoptive parents insisted I maintain. 
Within that shell, away from their notice, I evolved pupated, devised a different approach to my definitions of success. Idaho is by no means the only state with horrible human rights record laws when it comes to human trafficking victims of adoption. Many states are infected, were infected, with bad myths, evil memes, if you will, early in the history of the adoption industry practices. It was always a kind of market and industry, but it's becoming a more formal tool of statecraft in recent years. <clears throat> well, I hesitate to anchor this whole conversation too firmly at the present moment. Hmm. I think it's fair to say that the adoption industry, positioned as it is across religious organizations and nonprofits, benefits greatly both financially and ideologically from the wave of anti-abortion legislation that has passed during the years starting in 2019. Adoption is positioned as the response to abortion, a response that enables a machinery of oppression made palatable through commodification of the potential infant. An infant whose value is determined through its able-bodiedness, its racialized and gendered and genetic makeup, an infant who will be de-identified, spliced off from one family tree and grafted onto another. This two-layered horror show is the functional lived reality that these bills enacted will overlay into the lives of countless women throughout the states. That is not being done with the laudatory saccharine nature of a slave trader slinging dockside ware some 400 years ago makes this no less sickening when stories of abuse, neglect, and death of adoptees make the news. The most heartbreaking to me being those, as I've mentioned, international adoptees now deported, denied citizenship despite being taken as infants from the countries of their birth and then sent back to live in a culture they don't understand and a language they perhaps cannot speak. Um, Paul Fernando Schreiner, he was deported to Brazil, or Adam Krabser in South Korea, uh, Philip Clay, there are too many others. Yet even within the four years I've been alive, Adoption practices had begun to change in the state of Idaho. By the time my parents adopted my sister, she was no newborn. My sister's adoption took place two weeks or so after she had been born, while I was born and adopted within hours. And I slept in silent shock the night I arrived. Uh, while I often poured over the differences in our adoptions, as if those were the two types of adoptions, and if I could understand them, I could unravel some new insight into our presences. I thought more about her adoption as a marvel, a moment of divine inbreaking. As a four-and-a-half-year-old boy, gaining her so close to Christmas felt like a divine or at least angelic expression of favor. The gods clearly blessed our family, or so it seemed in the moment. In thinking about this reflectively, years later in my mid-twenties, I wondered if this was the curse where it all began. My sister's presence was a constant rage, often destructive, that underscored her unhappiness with her lot in life as a toddler. So God had dropped a second time bomb into our family, I being the first. Searching for my family meant thinking through my life and the lives of those around me and asking why, asking how could it have been different. 
and asking, sincerely, if this was divinely inspired, what was God thinking? Searching for my identity, at least in the first few years, meant dealing with all of these memories and family myths in a new light. It also caused me to put my adoptive parents at arm's length for years while I found my own equilibrium as an autonomous adult. Searching for one's identity is essentially digging into one's own personal horror. Becoming an adoptee and searching means confronting the horrors that one's shadow self is constantly throwing up in front of you, projecting onto others around you. I'm going to go into that a lot more in this uh, the next episode, um, but I really appreciate you sticking with me through this one. For now, my name is Jeffrey Wessandro. I was born in Twin Falls, Idaho at Magic Valley Regional Medical Center on April 15th, 1974, a little bit before 1 p.m., and by 5 or 6 p.m. that evening, I was already at my adoptive parents' house. I've sort of been putting the puzzle of it all together ever since. Thanks for joining me.